Hello, I'm Caitlin, and this episode is dedicated to Carl Sagan, who is quoted, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You know he said that about UFOs, right? No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That, I just love the UFO plug. He was like an <laughs> anti-UFOer. And I was like, oh, okay, Carl Sagan. And uh, I'm Zach, and the devil is in the details. And this is Manipulating the Masses. Don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, or what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You, the people, have the power. Bam, bam, boom, boom, boom. We're going intro. All right, let's go. All right. Uh, so, Zach, this podcast came from a suggestion of one of our listeners. Hey, okay. I'll take any suggestion. And a listener. Out of, out of Charlotte, things. North Carolina. And yeah, we pay her a lot of money to listen to our podcast. But nevertheless, we are calling her a listener. A listener is a listener. <laughs> Still counts in the metrics. Still counts. Still counts so yes, thank you, very uh, so yeah. specific listener. We know who you are. Yes, very thank specific you. listener. Uh, she does a lot of work with us. <laughs> All right, but she was interested. She wanted to uh, figure out like what the media's role in the satanic panic was. So I really Ooh. did a deep dive into this. And as always, I'm going to start off with a question for you. What is your familiarity with the satanic panic? What do you know about it? Uh, I think just the very high level things uh i know essentially the same thing like uh there was a big scare um propelled by the media that uh satan worshipers were coming in and taking over the moral values of america and were they killing kids too i, I remember that's like in my brain like they thought they were like murdering children but and having these wild sex orgies you know which two out of three ain't bad you know no killing children maybe the orgies and the uh devil worshiping i don't know you know okay you're you're kind of you're kind of there but really this the satanic panic was structured around the children so it wasn't just a piece of it it was the whole fucking thing it was the whole kit and wow. caboodle so the satanic panic uh, was a moral panic consisting of over 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse starting in the United States in the 1980s, spreading throughout many parts of the world by the oh. late 1990s uh, and persisting today. And it does uh, primarily involve child care. Can I ask a follow-up question? Now you say yeah. claims. Is these people Are these people like accusing others of performing say being a part of satanic cults and satanic yep. rituals and it was okay so they and they would file it like through what the law system like they'd file a court case yep holy shit okay okay what did you okay. think i meant when i said claims or like what know. could be the other i i have no idea like okay, okay. maybe like reporting them to the media like their local mm. media and being like oh you need to look into this or you no. need to report on this no these were actual legal. court claims yes these were legal filings wow. Twelve thousand unsubstantiated cases 
so let's break it down. Let's get right into it. A lot of people think the satanic panic started with a case known as the McMartin case in 1983, which is truly where the real fuel of the fire happened. Um, But it's only fair to point out that it really started with a book called Michelle Remembers. It was published in 1980. And uh, it was written by a Canadian psychologist and his former patient, also future wife, to know. I know. Talk about uh, walking a fine line of boundaries. <laughs> Not walking. That's that's straight up crossing the line. Like uh, you marry your patient. Yeah, you marry oh, your patient. That's not great. Who is going that's to you good. because she has psychological problems? Like there's some sort oh. of yeah, kind of uh, yeah. Oh. So uh, this so Michelle is her name. It was written by this Canadian psychologist about Michelle's memories of child abuse at the hands of Satanists. The Canadian psychologist used a widely discredited practice of recovered memory therapy uh, to bring out all of these memories. This is just discredited. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this book was published immediately some of these claims were quickly challenged but by then the book was an all-time bestseller um and by then it was really too late like this had just taken off and it began to fuel american anxieties so Mm. what were these american anxieties uh it's really important to note what was happening in the 80s Uh, As we've discussed in previous podcasts, uh, specifically the gender norms in advertising, we were beginning to see women go back to work by choice, which was kind of disrupting this nuclear family model uh, that we've seen kind of previously in the mid-century era. There's also the gays. The gays are coming out of the woodwork. New forms oh, of no. me- new forms of media uh, were coming about. You know, there was talk shows happening. Every there was like the com- personal computer. All of this stuff mm. was coming about. Um, so there was a lot of new things happening that were a direct threat to this kind of like moderately wealthy white suburban neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. So that was what was happening in the 80s. And then we get this book presented called Michelle Remembers that talks about Satanists. Oh, can I just, I just think the interesting point there, there's a few of them that I, great intro. Um, There's a few of them. The first one is, I think you hit the nail on the head with talk shows in the 80s. Like there was like hundreds of them coming out. Oprah, Geraldo, whatever his name is, like, you know, there was so many of them that a lot of these white middle class people would get their information from they would, that's how they would get their information. And I think that was a shift in media, this talk show style information. So that is an ahead. important point, right? You're jumping ahead. Sorry. You're jumping okay, ahead. Sorry. Sit down, sit down. God damn it. God damn it. You're doing too well. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, a hundred percent. And then the other thing was uh, hypnosis being discredited. I think Mm. that's, that's a fascinating point uh, because it is used a lot. And uh, especially I'm going to do another UFO reference. It's used a lot with like abductees with like recall memories. Um, And to the point that uh, a lot of police offices uh, just recently, there's one in Texas that just stopped using hypnosis to interrogate suspects. They would put suspects under hypnosis because it's discredited. It's not like there's falsified memories, but you can, it's not always true. Like you can still dictate a person's memory 
hundred uh, percent. So and you're going to see that yeah. a lot in this case, specifically, not necessarily pertaining to hypnosis, but a lot of these things that brought out these false memories were were prompted by leading questions. Yes, hundred um, percent. So that really comes into play during the trial of the McMartin case. Oh. So, there's a yeah, trial. So I'm it's a okay. Oh my God. Wait till, Oh, I can't wait to get further into this podcast. <laughs> so this McMartin case happened in the eighties. This was the fall of 1983 in Manhattan beach, California. A woman named Judy Johnson was the mother of a two and a half year old boy who attended the McMartin preschool. She called the police one evening and told detective jane hogue that a school aide named ray bucky the 25 year old son of the owner of the preschool had molested her son okay now they took these allegations seriously they brought in the son the young boy was unable to identify ray from photos and medical investigations of the boy showed no signs of sexual abuse however the police conducted searches of bucky's home ray bucky okay yeah confiscating such evidence as a rubber duck a graduation robe a teddy bear and playboy magazines and detective hogue arrested bucky september 7th of 1983 literally in the same quarter <laughs> it was wow the, yeah and we'll get into kind of those uh, those quote unquote pieces of evidence that they yeah have. i think that's what brought the most questions for me like yeah. why string those pieces together well right? i think like a rubber duck like what does an adult man have a rubber duck for this could be called into question a teddy bear and then of course playboy magazines but oh my god that's like every single male in america throughout time like these are not weird things yeah and like fuck fuck me if an adult male is sentimental and has a teddy bear and a rubber duck like oh my gosh i'm so like right right yeah it's that it's the same thing with gender roles it's that toxic male yes. uh, that we talked about as well not only the female coming out but like that toxic male but that men have to suppress be, exactly like they can't have any suppress kind of sense yeah. nostalgia or sentimental feelings yep 100 percent the next day after this arrest was made, police chief sent a letter to 200 of the McMartin preschool parents, informing them that Ray Bucky was suspected of child abuse and asking them for any information that they might have. Not only was he asking for information, but he was asking parents to question their child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. The letter listed the possible criminal acts under investigation, and I'm going to read those off. This is exactly verbatim what the letter said. The uh, criminal acts could include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretext of, quote, taking the child's temperature, unquote. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, it's important, please come forward. Do you want to just unpack oh, that for God. a second? Yeah, that's just top-notch de detective work, in my opinion. I mean, whoa. Um, just, I'm just kidding. What would you I do mean... as a parent if you received this letter? Like, you'd be freaked out. You'd be like, oh, my God, this is happening Absolutely. at the same place I send my 
child to school every day, like, what the fuck? Of course I'm going to freak out. Of course I'm going to probe my child. I don't know. And in the 80s, there wasn't any tactful, thoughtful, mindful manner in which you speak to kids. You're just kind of like blunt with them. Kind of like, hey, dude, have you been touched inappropriately? The kids kind of started making up this fantasy. Yeah. And they started, yeah, as kids do, right? If you're prompted... I mean, what are they? Preschool, two, three years yes. old, four years old? Of the course. first kid who was uh, Judy Johnson's child was two and a half years old. You can't even, I was just at a Super Bowl party yesterday and my friend has a two-year-old. He does not say words. He does not say yeah. words. <laughs> he cannot properly yeah. communicate with you. So these allegations are insane. And of course you're speaking to two-year-olds and three-year-olds who, if you're saying, hey, did he touch you here? You know, you could get whatever answer you want out of them. Yeah, wow. So the chief's letter ended by asking parents to quote, please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of these charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. But dude, you just sent the letter to 200 people. Like you're the one who should be keeping this confidential. Yeah, and and to to be clear, Bucky has not been con- convicted on any of these charges currently, right? That's like, where it gets no bad. There's no conviction. That's yeah, where it gets bad. Just, yep. Yeah, it's all allegations. It's all point. allegations. It's all probing. It's like, hey, we uncovered something sensational, and we want to keep uncovering this because we think that there's something <sighs> there. So, needless to say, it wasn't long before everyone connected with the McMartin Preschool, and indeed, most everyone in the LA metropolitan area knew of the ongoing investigation against Ray Bucky. Okay, so now we're going to get into the media, which you touched on. In order to understand just how the media blew this up, let's take a look at the rapidly evolving media technologies that was available in the 80s. Mm. TV is an absolute living room fixture at this point. It was delivering more human interest stories. You talked about talk shows were becoming very popular. There was handheld video cameras, mobile phones, VHS, Uh, portable music devices, personal computers, the works, right? This also, this kind of all plays into this idea of threatening this modular family, nuclear family of the white suburban, moderately wealthy neighborhood. So you're introducing all of these technologies. Additionally, we saw consumerism start to play an increasingly central role in the lives Mm -hmm. of America because with media comes commercials, Mm -hmm. comes Mm -hmm. consumerism. Um, You have a broader audience. You can reach more people with TV. And not to mention commercials is a new form of advertisement, right? You're not stills in a newspaper anymore. You can tell an entire story, right? Like 100%. So there was this fear around news stations that media was being controlled by big corporate companies, which was not far off. I'll get into that. They were selling and producing shows that aligned with corporate agendas to place ads. Is there any difference today? Oh my God. I want to discuss that after this entire story. Like exactly. (laughs) I mean, I asked myself the same question. 
So you start to see more stories evolve, like political events, talk shows, traffic problems, sex scandal, brutal crimes, sports, children, all of these kind of interesting, sensational stories started to get more coverage than just the plain old report mm -hmm. on the facts news that was not mm -hmm. selling stories, it was not selling ads. Um, so we kind of saw the local news fold into this larger genre that people are now calling tabloid television oh so uh, tabloid yes. television or what critics labeled quote trash tv <laughs> yep I, I like that i like the latter yep. i like the latter uh, -huh. uh tabloid shows worked exclusively on behalf of their corporate sponsors the most prominent tabloid programs of the 1980s included you nailed it oprah winfrey show you, you we had the entertainment tonight show yeah. unsolved mysteries inside edition america's most wanted cops and all of these were kind of defined as reality or um, what they're also quoting actuality programming yeah yeah. Bert Dubrow was a producer of one of these shows, and he says, we just do subjects that we feel will compel people to watch. So that's it's kind of just stating the obvious. We're pivoting yep. with our news strategy, and we want to bring sensationalism into this conversation. Eyeballs, 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 yeah. you know? Blood mm -hmm. cells. Mm -hmm. Tabloid television became insatiable. It expanded in scope and helped redefine television to what it is today. So you ask, like, is that much different than what we're what we're ingesting today? And the answer is no. But I really want to talk through that with you at, kind of later in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the '80s truly helped define what we are watching today and what is popular. Some of the titles I loved these titles. So <laughs> yeah, some of the titles that they ran with. Uh, missing Children, The Atlantic Story, Male Sexual Solutions, Women and Extramarital Affairs, Abused Wives Who Have Killed, Gigolos, my favorite. <laughs> That's a good, just straight up just simple. Straight up that, gigolos. That, yeah, gigolos, yep. <laughs> and uh, Parents of Murdered Children. Ugh. So all of these, like, are heightening kind of the anxiety in America mm -hmm. is there is a threat to my immediate family. Then came the American TV conglomerates. We saw media stations start to join forces. In, in 1980, yeah. the number of commercial television stations rose from 734 to 1,092. And Maybe that doesn't seem like a lot, but can you imagine flipping I mean, through a thousand channels of TV? How do you decide? I can't. I can because don't you remember when you're younger before we had like subscription Direct or, TV, or TV. yeah, like TV guide channel? You'd just sit there and it'd be like hundreds and hundreds of channels yep. scrolling through. Yep, 100%. a thousand channels. And while this seems Daunting. like a lot at the time, they were still kind of independently owned. So everyone had an opinion, mm. everyone had a say. But then in the 80s, we really saw companies start to engulf other companies, especially in the media space, right? Yes. especially in the media space. 100%. Mm -hmm. um, they it, it, throughout this decade in the 80s, they consolidated the most prominent film, radio, television, newspapers, magazines, books, music, telecommunication, they all merged under one roof, and then they can start to disseminate their ideas. So an yep. example, 
roughly 50 companies controlled almost all print and electronic media. And actually, like, 50 companies to me seems like a very very small amount considering there was a thousand stations being shown to the American consumer. Only 50 people, right? Like only 50 decision makers were deciding on what was being shown to the American people. And that's scary. But I kind of want to know, I didn't dive into this, but like how many companies control our media now? I would say it's far less than 50, far less. Oh, yeah. I mean, the one that comes to mind is Sinclair Media Group. They own, I mean, just a plethora of local news stations. Yeah. Um, and that is their platform. They they lean right. They're conservative based and they are taking over local news stations. Yeah. Uh, because they want to dominate. Right. Fox well, is another one that just owns News Corp technically is like huge they just and that's international they own uh, publications all over the world uh it's just nuts it's nuts these people can just proliferate their ideas right in a more relevant sense we see amazon ceo jeff bezos or whatever step renounced ceos jeff bezos owning the washington post so you're not even seeing media companies Mm. owning different media companies you're seeing private corporate companies owning media companies so now jeff bezos has a say in what the washington post disseminates like so this is the this is kind of the threat and i think just a just a last cherry on top of that is like i have a problem with the new york times being traded on the stock market like you can invest you can buy stock in the new york times so now they're it's just like taking a company private to public you're beholden to stakeholders and those stakeholders are have an interest in what you're doing and they have a say in what you're doing Mm -hmm. uh if you're a news publication you should be independent and and you should keep as many chefs out of the kitchen as possible right absolutely Uh, so one example of this um so i said in the 80s roughly 50 companies controlled almost all print and media um and now this goes back to the corporate sponsor conversation one great example was getty oil which is an oil company owned espn like what does an oil company have anything to do with like you have no business owning a media network um later espn is now owned by abc but that's just, but uh, yeah disney uh but that's just one example of a private company not having any business in the media space um in 1996 time warner bought a staggering array of entities including new i'm gonna list these off so keep up hit me new line cinema cnn cartoon network comedy central tbs tnt sega channel black entertainment television which i thought Uh. was an oddball the wb time warner cable warner brothers records atlantic groups we see them branching into records electra time um inc all these magazines uh, the Atlanta Braves World Championship <laughs> Wrestling and what and Six Flags theme parks were just some of the companies that were acquired by Time Warner. In what time? In in one year? In 1996. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So they just made a move. Yep. So uh, those are kind of just some examples of the type of information that is being spread throughout so many different channels, but it's all coming from one higher up 
a movie in the 80s called, and, and I'm just going to quote this, it's called The Network, uh, was released that really speaks to what was happening in the 80s, uh, where the American consumer becomes totally enthralled with media. The main character of this movie says, says that television is, quote, the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world, adding, woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. And I thought that was so brilliantly said. And I want to pause here for a second because there's so much to unpack. Like, first, do you think that television has fallen into the wrong hands at this point? And second, how do you find it applicable to the age that we're living in right now with all of these different media sources at our fingertips? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I don't really know the answer because I think television in and of itself has taken a major shift to we're not typically sitting back and just being fed information. We now streaming services are the biggest thing. We now can pick and choose Mm -hmm. what kind of information we want to point the, the, the end user, the viewer has more power to select what they want to watch. So the branding becomes a little bit different, right? But at the same time, I do think in a sense, it's fallen in the wrong hands because and let me, and I have no data to back this up, but let me just speculate for a second. We, we, who, who's the most common, like just normal TV viewer, as we know it traditionally in the eighties, it's, it's the boomers, right? It's the older generation. Yeah. It's, it's that generation that hasn't really made the entire shift to streaming channels. Like you, do you, watch live tv ever never 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 right i do it for sports and that's it like i watch a live sports game and that's it like i don't watch live tv right who does do that is this older demographic so we see like sinclair media like news corp who owns fox news and all the fox channels fall we see tv falling into the wrong hands for that generation and they their political views are becoming on the whole not everybody but on the whole are becoming skewed in a certain direction uh, so it, it, I think it has. I think I want to add to this and let me say like, I, the, I like the way you're approaching it, where you are thinking about the companies that are owned media, but I thought about it as the individual now, now owns our media, which to me is, uh, I can't decide if it's more dangerous mm. or is, or if it is helpful. Um, I think now that kind of the consumer has taken back the way that we digest information. It has fallen into the wrong hands. <laughs> we're the wrong hands. Is we're that what the, you're I think I think we're the wrong hands because listen, yeah. we talk about this all the time disinformation. I mm. am allowed to go seek out the type of information that I want to read. I'm allowed to do that versus in the 80s I had a thousand nine eleven hundred channels to view where I could yeah. get my information from, but I didn't have fucking the World Wide Web. So I think, and the individual now has the opportunity to put out this media, and so I do. I don't know. I hate to say it. I hate to say that like giving us the right to information 
is putting the ha- putting it into the wrong hands, but I almost believe that. Oh yeah, I think you have a point because uh, at the same time we see social media falling into these echo chambers because yeah. the algorithm is tailoring what you like, and now the Netflix algorithm, the Hulu algorithm. Yes. Like, yes. I bet you if you pulled up your Netflix homepage and I pulled up my Netflix homepage, even the trending now section would be completely different right and and you you're just fed this like this information based on what you already like so it kind of just yeah feeds your your yeah i i totally see a system like the algorithms just feed us what we like already it's not challenging us so so then yeah, maybe yeah i see your point there maybe we can say that the information has fallen into the hands of the algorithm Mm -hmm. and it's just it's the same as social media right like is that the wrong hands and i think so the algorithm tailored to the point that i think we can agree that the algorithm is the wrong hands yeah yes i totally agree i totally agree feeding us just what we want is essentially what we're saying like just just reinforcing our already our tastes and our likes that's not what media should be it should be that's how you experience different cultures and different Mm -hmm. ideas and yep and that's how you challenge yourself and the way it's set up now no way yeah, and maybe I take back my statement and not necessarily that it's in the hands of the users because it's not. It is out of our hands. It's in the hands of the algorithm. So it's not, uh, it isn't the user, it's the algorithm. And so, yeah, to just wrap this up, it is, I think we are in agreement that it has fallen into the wrong hands at this point. It's run by a fucking robot, people. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah i'm with you scary big brother to the extreme big brother very big brother so okay now that we talked about that now i'm gonna get really english major degree on you degree yes yes uh did you ever study someone named gene baudrillard no okay i feel like not that i remember i was very stoned getting my degree so it's oh for sure i kind of of prompted that like i was a very a plus student who studied all these theorists but like i barely passed college let's not forget that and (laughs) when i saw the name gene baudrillard i was like oh shit i remember these classes and gene baudrillard is very postmodern which i just found so like i was so fixated on the postmodern movement and i'll explain this in a little bit and maybe it'll ring a bell because you're like me we like barely passed we're like yeah we're teenagers but like i was not sitting at the front of the class let's be real um so in 1981 french sociologist philosopher and cultural theorist jean baudrillard published a theory called simulacra and simulation which viewed western culture and society desperately trapped inside of a simulated environment so he's oh awesome um, i right i knew you would get so high on this all of these technologies had created what he coins a quote hyper reality which was a place of real sensations real emotions and real consequences but stimulated by machines instead of natural circumstances Mm-hmm. Weren't you amazing. like amazing? Like, aren't you just kind of like fuck? I wish I had come up with that sentence myself. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, it's it, it speaks to one of one of my favorite. It's a book, and one of like I told you, I'm not a big fiction person, but there is one fiction book that I really love. It's a movie now, uh, Ready Player One. 
Have you ever seen that? I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, it's it's the same premise, right? Like there's this alternate reality, this digital reality that just takes over and everybody lives there. The the regular real reality life is 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 yes. not is desolate it's in a sense. And exactly. And everybody lives to to succeed and feel things in this alternate reality and so yeah, in my english crazy. class like this was the one class that i really fucking loved the only one i don't even think i came out of it with like a passing grade <laughs> but it was <laughs> postmodern and let me in postmodern is this idea of the i wrote a paper on fight club for example so awesome. you're immersed in this scene with brad pitt and edward norton and you're totally involved but then you see edward norton kind of talking to you talking to the camera addressing the audience like he knows that you're watching him mm -hmm. which is totally postmodern and speaks mm -hmm. to this hyper reality where everyone's kind of living in their own realities nothing is truly real so I would love to even like go deeper into this and do a podcast strictly on Jean Baudrillard because I, it all came back to me. It all came flooding back to me. Um, it's fascinating. It is I fascinating. Agree. It's totally fascinating. So uh, Disneyland is a great example that he ah. uses uh, in real life where we create this fantasy world that we all want to be a part of, but it's just centered in the middle of Anaheim, California, and the reality on the outside of these walls is just so different, but we get to play pretend for a day. Amazing. Yeah. I love it. it that's a great example too. Have you ever been to Disney World, like the Disney yeah. in Florida? No, nah, no, nah, the world one in Florida. Yes. Like, have you? Oh, I thought you Why just said the California one. Because you don't know anything about the East Coast. That's why I don't believe you. You have no <laughs> idea where anything is on the East Coast. So I assumed you had never been there. Okay. That's so fair. That's so fair. You were probably like, she doesn't know that there's a world, does she? She doesn't know. She just <laughs> yes. yes. She doesn't even know that it exists. <laughs> and most West Coast, I lived on the West Coast. Most of them were like, oh yeah, the one in California. I'm like, no, the one in Florida's next level. Like, okay, okay. Well, I, to okay. To be clear, I do know the difference between Disneyland <laughs> and Disney World. And yes, I have been to the one in Florida. Okay, good. Okay. Did you have just something checking. to add just to that? Checking. Or were you just curious if I had been? I just I just think that that idea is amplified even more because they have five different parks, right? Yeah. Like you have Epcot, you have Animal Kingdom, and they all are in their own little like there's this encompassing reality, but each one has its own sub reality. And I think that's a great further example of that is like how they do a great job cultivating this animal kingdom versus versus magic kingdom versus uh, all these other ones, right? California um, land it, or whatever that one's called where you can, yeah. so everyone MGM can actually, or something MGM, like that. Yeah. Everyone can kind of visit a different sector of reality. You can pick your, pick your adventure. Yep, exactly. But they, even the buses that take you park to park, they keep you in this Disney encompassing reality, right? And uh, even in Disney World, they have the a bunch of sports. I went and played tournaments down there for soccer. Like they have ESPN Wild World, Wide World of Sports Complexes. Yes. So then when you go playing sports, like you're encompassing in this ESPN reality. Yeah. They do they do a tremendous job of that. And it's it's crazy the way you framed it. Like it makes you think twice. 
three yeah. times, maybe even four times. Yep. Disney's power is unreal. Yep. Okay. So I feel like this is a good time. Well, actually, let me just end the Jean Baudrillard thing <laughs> and say those and tie it back to the panic, the satanic panic. Mm. So those who were experienced this, experiencing this panic directly were living inside of their own hyper reality where the panic uh. became more real to them than their natural lived experience. They chose to participate in this panic versus hey, this is my reality and this actually isn't happening, but they're choosing to live in a hyper-reality state. Fascinating. I know, I know. Fascinating. I don't want to get ahead of you, but can I, and I can cut this out if if I am jumping ahead, but the the thing that popped into my head with, same with this satanic panic, these people building their own realities and really living in it and freaking out about it uh, is QAnon. It, Stop it. Stop difference? it. Sit down, sit down. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll cut, I'll cut that out. Okay. 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 I, I was like, you just got my wheels turning. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. Actually, you can okay, leave that part in. I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> Cause it did, it does prompt people to listen further. Okay. So, um, yeah. I want to blow your fucking mind now. Uh, yes. okay. let's talk about Judy Johnson. Judy Johnson is the mother of this two and a half year old boy who made all these allegations. I found a report and it was direct notes from the Judy Johnson interview. And I am going to preface that these are sporadical, they're nonsensical, they, uh, so they're not real sentences, uh, but you can kind of pick out where she was and, and what she actually reported was happening okay. to her son. So Judy Johnson's reports of misbehavior at the Martin McMartin preschool were this. She claimed oh that Peggy Bucky, which was Ray's mother, was mm. involved in satanic practices. She was said to have taken Johnson's son to a church where the boy was made to watch a baby being beheaded and then forced, <laughs> to, drink, then forced to drink the blood, which also QAnon. Um, she yeah. insisted that Ray Bucky had sodomized her son while his head was in the toilet and had taken him to a car wash and locked him in the trunk. Johnson told police that Ray pranced around the preschool in a cape. Remember back in the first section of this podcast, I said that they found a graduation cape. This is why that was marked as quote unquote oh, evidence. So they said that Ray pranced around the preschool in a cape in a Santa Claus costume and that other teachers at the school chopped up rabbits and placed quote some sort of star on her son's bottom this is where it gets really sporadic lots of candles they were black I think it wasn't was... sporadic already no this is it funny, was, that, wa that wasn't the sp sporadic part that no. wasn't the okay okay no. buckle it up all yeah, right because right. actually i was just reading this and this is funny because this was taken from a police report so it's very clear that he, he was like taking sentences like okay this is what happened this is what happened and then halfway through he was like fuck this i'm just taking bullet point notes like this doesn't make any yeah. sense so then yeah. he says uh, this is, says, lots of candles. They were black. Ray picked, hit, pricked his pointer finger. It bled. 
Ray put it in a goat's anus. Nobody had clothes on under the robes. Billy had a robe on too. They put a Band-Aid on his finger. Old grandma played the piano. Lots of threats were made against Billy and his family. It's unclear whether it was a doll or a real baby, but the head was chopped off and the brains were burned. Billy said Peggy killed the baby. Peggy had scissors in the church and she cut Billy's hair. Billy had to drink the baby's blood. Ray wanted Billy's spit. He put it on the altar. The three, and I'm, I also cut so much of this shit out. I'm almost thinking like, do I need to go any further? One, the one thing I did want to say is <sighs> the three women are witches. Uh, the person who buried Billy is Miss Betty. There weren't any holes in the coffin so he couldn't breathe. Staples were put into Billy's ears, nipples, and tongue. So yeah, now I'm going to stop because this is like, you get it. You fucking get it, right? Like, I mean, I don't, but I do. Like, I'm like thoroughly confused. Yep. This is the report that started it all. Johnson was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic after a 12-day psychiatric examination in 1985, only two years after these allegations. But by then, it was full-blown everywhere. The trials were, like, people were arrested. She died of alcohol poisoning in December of 86 before she had a chance to testify at the trial. So not only, she was a alcoholic, paranoid schizophrenic who launched the satanic panic. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. Let let me just say off the bat, fuck that police officer that took that seriously. Your job is to listen, take notes, be like, all right, we'll look into it. And then you know for a fact that that's, that's ridiculous. Secondly, where did they get the goat? You know, if you're putting blood in a goat's anus, where do you source the goat? Where do you source it? They said that goats were, there was more than one goat in some of the uh, testimony and they were walking up the wall. And I was like, I'm going to cut that out. (laughs) Like too much, but yeah. And Where did they get a goat in the middle of Cal- Huntington Beach, California, by the way? Yeah. It's not like the middle yeah. of America. And then, so the other thing that I, I mean, the other interesting piece that I caught from that is is labeling them witches. Because I wrote down two things. When you, when you started this, when you started this, I wrote down two things. I wrote QAnon and I wrote the Salem Witch Trials. And I just see a common thread in humanity between the the witch trials, the satanic panic, and QAnon. Yep. Like, there is a common thread between all of these that people just are eager and willing to yep. accept these realities. And yeah. I don't have an answer why, but it's just fascinating, right? Yeah. Later on, I mean, they literally called this a witch hunt. Like, profound lawyers and uh, some of the prosecutors were like, this was just a, a, a big elaborate expensive witch hunt um you were just in i wanted to actually ask you about the witch trials because you were just in europe and uh, i don't want to talk any more about that because i hear it on every single client (laughs) call how zach got a nice two-week vacation to europe we get it (laughs) but no i do want you were you at some sort of you said you like went to some sort of like witch grounds or something yeah what was that uh, about in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, they were very prominent. And uh, witch trials, they would. The interesting story with the witch trials is a lot of women in the 1700s were suspected of being a witch, and how they would go on trial was they would throw the women in a box, right, and then uh, throw them into the river. Oh my and god! And if if the box sank, 
and the women drowned, they knew they weren't a witch. And then if they floated, they were a witch and then they'd be pulled in and executed. So it, it was literally a lose-lose situation. If you were accused of being a witch, you dead. I mean, the only, the only plus you're I was dead. talking about it, and like the only, yeah, like the only plus you would have of like sinking to the bottom is at least like after you're dead, your name's vindicated, right? Like they're, you're, they're like, oh, she wasn't a witch, but she's not around here anymore. Um, and like, you know, I'm not but, a super, super, like I'm not a superstitious person in the 10th degree, but like I visited the spot where they would burn the witches. Like I was there I, and you, you could, there was something heavy lingering in the air there. Uh, yeah. So I love that's that. why I tied it to those witch trials too. Right. Like it's the same thing. It's the I same thing. I don't know a lot about science, but if you throw a wooden <laughs> coffin into the river doesn't that wood float regardless until it fills up with water and then you sink it unless there's a heavier person in there you know unless... it depends on like the person right like so it's really people, like all witches yeah. were very thin and skinny because they stayed at the top and then no <laughs> yeah yeah and you know i think the the research was like a lot of them um you know men would accuse their wives of being wishes if they didn't want to be with them anymore because divorce was not so prominent so it'd be like, uh, I'm just going to accuse you of being a witch. And then they do this trial where they threw them in the river and they're gone either way. You know, yep. um, it's that's crazy. But it, it, it tying it back, like the idea is just as ludicrous as the satanic panic. Like it starts with someone and we see it today where it just starts with this ludicrous idea. Nobody researches it to the foundation. I'm so glad you pulled the police report of this because that is the foundation of it. And it's ridiculous. And you like chase it down to its core and you're like, what the fuck is this? So something that I didn't have time to explore was this idea that the children need to be believed. And I think this came from Michelle Remembers, the book that was uh, published mm. in, the, in 1980, um, where before that, I think there were accusations that child that children were being molested and it was really swept under the carpet i don't know like please don't quote me on this but like that could line up with some sort of catholic church uh coming about uh, and like that being swept under the rug and so i think yeah. there was this uh sense of we need to believe the children and this is our opportunity to do so but maybe yeah. like let's not believe judy johnson maybe we'll let's bring in another yeah. reputable character here yeah i maybe have some validating uh claims um yeah and yeah i won't get in the way of this but i just the the, the commonality i'm so interested to see how uh particularly because the same thing with the witch trials they were bewitching children uh salem or the satanic uh panic they were abusing children QAnon they were they were abusing children and i'm just uh, i'm curious to see i mean to me that's messaging like how can you be against that yeah you hear yeah, yeah, that yeah. and yeah. Your, your gut reaction is like oh my gosh we need to stop this like children are at harm and i wonder if they just play these movements just play into that because yeah. they know of the visceral reaction and and people are going to be on board for it right it's it's crazy totally it's crazy 
if you go against this, if you are like, let's not believe the children, then you are the problem. Then you are exactly going to go get like whatever ridiculed. Yeah. The children is really Crazy. a mechanism to get a larger message out there. It's just like, let's use the children as a vehicle for our message, for our outlandish yeah. propaganda. Yeah. And it's, I think part of it is because they don't have a voice yet themselves. Right. They're children, totally. right? Like yeah. they're not, they're, they don't really have a voice yet. So there's mm -hmm. no one to counteract their claims mm -hmm. because, you know, and I, yeah, it's just nuts. That that's that's a strange common thread to see between all of these mass hysteria yes, movements that we're seeing in past in the eighties and the past and currently going on. Uh, really strange, really strange. So, what happened with the McMartin case? Uh, parents Him. were encouraged to send their children to interviews with psychologists uh, and social workers. Key McFarlane was the social worker that pressed 400 children on these accusations. Oh. And she did this through a series of leading questions and even offering them rewards. Uh. So, yeah. So the the interviews went like every single one of them pretty much went the same at first the children were flat out denying any abuse but eventually the children came around to giving mcfarland the stories that she so clearly wanted to hear by 1984 384 mcmartin students had been diagnosed as sexually abused that is nearly every single student every single student wow yeah. the probability of that happening like how do people have time for that yeah and what would be this uh, i'm sorry what was her name the social worker Mc, uh, uh mcfarland mcfarland what what mcfarland what what do you think's her goal i mean is it like notoriety and yes everyone of like discovering and uncovering this right because like i said i think there was like this is our opportunity to make things right that happened in the past and there's all these anxieties floating around the american culture right now that people wanted to be mm. the hero of this story and so that was her mm. kind of take on it uh never mind though that like again i said this before like we didn't really know how to talk to children back then we were just kind of like you know treated them abruptly and talked to them like adults there wasn't any tactics yeah. there wasn't a tactical way to do this because children do not think like adults do so when mcfarland said did you know there he she's showing them an anatomically correct doll and she'd be like did they put uh touch you here and pointing to like private parts and um the you know you get asked that enough as a child after hours and hours of interviewing and say listen you don't have to be afraid you can tell me if he touched you here and i will give you some sort of reward i'll give you a piece of candy i think that was the incentive is to be the hero in this yeah yeah and manipulate i mean manipulating these kids enough yeah. to get the you know correlate their own reality to tie it all back like that was their reality that they needed to uncover this that this was a terrible thing that happened and they needed to manifest it in some way somehow yes incredible 
So um, they, like, there was zero evidence. No evidence was found. No nude photos, because often, like, there was a theme mm -hmm. that they took nude photos of these kids. There were no nude photos. Uh, one of the most outlandish claims was there were secret rooms and there were tunnels, and these were made by the kids. <laughs> like, how fanatical is this, like, imaginary land? These kids were like, yeah, they took us into this tunnel, and 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 then, they, like, we went underground, and we went into this secret room. Like, it sounds like a fucking harry potter book like mm -hmm. and i'm not kidding zach they actually parents of the mcmartin children paid to have uh the uh, grounds around the mcmartin school excavated to find these secret tunnels and that was after the police were like nope there's no secret tunnels like we're done here let's wrap it up the parents were like we're gonna find these secret tunnels there were no secret tunnels yeah a little bit of karma at least they lost some money on this whole shit <laughs> right. you know uh, by the time the preliminary hearings began in august of 1984 the prosecutor was telling the media that there were seven defendants and they were all kind of like related. There was Ray, there was Peggy, who was Ray's mother. There was the founder mm -hmm. of the McMartin school. So they were all kind of in this. So there were seven defendants in this criminal case. Um, and she was, the prosecutor was telling the media that they were, they had committed 397 sexual crimes. Like, yeah, out of 400 students. I can't wow. even list 300 sexual crimes. Like I could list like, you know, rape, sodomy. Oh, there's 300 different crimes, different charges. crimes. Yes. Wow. All testimonies in this preliminary hearing were completely outlandish. And they really started, this was the first time that they got all of these kids like in the same room. And they really yeah. started to understand that these claims were outlandish and that the kids were contradicting each other. Like they're all just telling their own fantasy of what yeah. happened. And, uh, you know, there were stories, like I said, like they uh, played Co uh, cops and robbers they had to do it naked they went mm. to the circus and they had to do it naked and like <laughs> all of these things doesn't it just sound like it came from a child's brain yeah, and one of the most outlandish claims and this is actually kind of the defining moment for some of the prosecuting team was a child alleged that they took that the seven criminals or defendants took the kids to a cemetery made them unbury the bodies took ice picks to all of these graves unbury the bodies and then start stabbing at the bodies like chopping them up like absolutely yeah. ridiculous so then the prosecuting team like i said the prosecuting team they just straight up started begin doubting these stories and began doubting their own case and a lot at of this point at like, this point, just... they're already in the preliminary trial. And they Jesus. told this lead prosecutor, they're like, we got to drop charges. Like, there is not 397 charges in this case. Yeah. We have to start dropping charges. And this prosecutor was really headstrong. Again, you want to be the hero in this story. So mm. she's like, I'm not going to drop charges. By the end, everyone was acquitted. The case lasted seven years and cost Jesus. $15 million. It is the longest and most expensive criminal case in the history of the United States today. Wow. Really? Yeah. And then at what point, 
do you know that and as far as the timeline goes did the satanic panic in the media take hold was this before trials or was this during trials like at what point did the the information yeah. or disinformation i say yeah. really start to take hold it was immediately as ray Buck allegations Bucky yeah, as was the arrested it was reported on by a local abc affiliate mm. and because we just understood that all of a sudden all of these media companies started to become conglomerates that local abc affiliate was also reported by a national ABC affiliate. It was on 2020. And then it started to pick up steam. And because everyone was so fascinated by sensationalism, that's kind of where we ended up with the satanic panic. And it's incredible that it, it, 12,000 unsubstantiated claims of yeah. satanic rituals that resulted in, uh, in court, not even just like in in like PTA meetings or something like that, which I'm sure were numerous, right? Yes. Like yes, that's uh, nuts. And just to skip ahead a little bit, like shortly after that, th this is where your question kind of comes into play. Is more than a hundred different preschools across the country then became the object of similar sensationalist allegations. So 100 preschools, 12,000 unsubstantiated claims. This moral panic left hundreds of emotionally damaged children. And the people and the defendants were left to rot in jail. I mean, a lot of these cases were, they were found guilty. Um, in the McMartin case specifically, the defendants in this case had an enormous bail. So Peggy was set at $1 million. Ray couldn't even post bail. So he sat in a jail cell for five years waiting, oh. waiting trial for this. Uh, for something that was based off of an alcoholic schizophrenic. Wow. Yeah. One juror uh, on that case, Mark Bassett, singled out experts for blame. He said, I thought some of the expert testimony about the children told you more about the expert than the child. I mean, mm. if the expert says children are always 100% believable, and then you have a child who is not believable. You're forced to believe them because the expert told me to believe them. So that's where really where this all went wrong. We saw an expert testimonial by this social worker, Key McFarlane, who used unsubstantiated or uh, used um, kind of leading Just questions. Just leading questions, yeah. And yeah. he's offered rewards. Like all of these tactics are completely, they're not used anymore. And she was noted as an expert. And so I think we saw this across the board too. It's like we saw that Key McFarlane was able to get 384 children to say, yes, I was abused. So of course, social workers across the nation are going to replicate her tactics that are now, that are now completely debunked. So that's how they were getting all of these cases. The sad part of the story too is, is I doubt so many people like the Buckleys spent a long time in jail and will probably never recover from these allegations, no. but I'm sure the careers of these people who facilitated this not even a dent. I mean, they're able to continue. They're able to keep moving forward. 
and they're not serving any time. They just cause harm and move on. And yep. that's truly, truly the saddest part of the story to me is that those those experts or those people that the police officers, the the social workers that facilitated this satanic panic, nothing. Yeah. No association whatsoever. Right. Crazy. So some discussion prompts that I want to get into is like, how do you think that we can avoid this type of wildfire spreading in this day and age? Oh, oh I, uh, the sad thing is, I think it's unavoidable. I think it, it, what, in our conversations, it's happening currently with QAnon. Maybe that just recently fizzled out the QAnon stuff yeah. um, or is fizzling out currently. Uh, and then, yeah, this satanic panic, the witch trials, I think it's human nature. I think people are seeking out evil in the world and yeah, there are, they want to believe it. They want to believe there is, I think you did a great job bringing up the, your own reality. Like people, people believe there's, there's evilness permeating everywhere. I also think like what is happening in society is really like, there is a fear happening every so so often something is changing within society mm. that can then echo in some of these like out of proportion stories that we're seeing and yeah. so people choose to believe this because they're so afraid of the change that's actually happening in society that it's like okay you want to change then this is the result of change. You will force children into satanic practices. Yep. And they're almost kind of like hanging on to these stories to make their point that change is bad. Uh, I think the only thing I totally agree with you. And I think that if we're going to put onus on anyone, on anybody in this, in this system that proliferates the, this stuff is the media again, you know, how different would the satanic panic been if they would have reported on the police notes and the original report of the satanic panic that pride and you hit the nail on the head. I think you did a great job is, is their prioritization of eyeballs, which means profit, which means corporate sponsors that is where the priority is and that is you know that's here's, the way it's going to be here's my next question for you zach how do you feel about the state of journalism in this day and age uh do you think we've learned our lesson in all of this <laughs> absolutely not i no, think we've, me neither. we've dug ourselves deeper i mean the the example that popped into my head is this fucking my pillow guy mike lindell his access to Fox News and his access, I mean, he was just recently banned, but his access to that show and his spot as a contributor, do you think it's because he's an expert or because he paid millions of dollars over the course of the year to buy ads on Fox News shows? There is a direct link to buying and paying and, and sustaining that news and access to that news station. Um, and they need to be church and state. And companies don't do that. I think also everything is so now in the now it needs to be fed to us uh, yesterday. Yep. We're always thirsty for information. So journalists, and I don't want to knock on journalists by any means, because that is not my area of expertise whatsoever. I cannot speak to how they, how they uh, uh, do stories, but I want to say that like yeah. journalism is so quick to put out that leading headline that they're saying, Hey, 
we heard that there is a that Hillary Clinton is drinking baby's blood. That's a headline. That's going to sell. That's mm-hmm. going to create that's going to make our corporate sponsors happy because we get a lot of money from the amount of readers we get instead of saying, yep. "Okay, let's ask the source directly where they found out that Hillary was drinking baby's blood. Yeah, I think, and we've talked about it before. You're exactly right because the competition in media and the digital landscape has changed to where it used to be the New York times competing with the Washington post competing, but now you're competing with people, blogger a and blogger B and blogger C that have no line of publication, no editorial oversight, like, and you're competing with them because if they put out a more sensational blog and it's published on the same platform, Facebook, and you're publishing your well thought out responsible journalism piece and they're publishing their grabby headline that, that has some kind of crazy, you're going to lose every time Facebook. Yeah. And it's equal spacing on Facebook. You're going to lose every single time. Yeah. And you're going to lose to blogger B cashing in on all of these people clicking to their half-assed article. The content doesn't matter anymore. It's the headline. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sad. So I think we've just dug at this hole deeper. Yeah. And it's, I think we've gone backwards since the 80s like we've gone backwards and you bring up a good point so in the 80s there was we we played around with this number a thousand and ninety two stations on cable television to choose from now we have uh how many websites are on the internet 500 billion websites on the internet to choose from like i get to go seek out that information and 500 billion people are trying to talk to me instead of a thousand people exactly um, exactly. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's what I was going to say is, is we're going down the same path as the eighties. The digital landscape is doing the exact same thing that happened in the, in the eighties and in our, in our social media and anti-vax podcast, we yeah, said all of this information people. coming from 12 people, just like all the information on TV in the eighties was coming from 50 companies. Yep. There is, there is a distinct distinct pattern we're following once again. And it, I think that led to QAnon. We're getting the same results as the satanic panic, that type of information and how it like, it's the same path. We're yeah. just doing it over and over again. Yeah. This you sensationalism. And I ran into a lot of articles that was like the satanic panic never ended. <laughs> like we're mm, still yeah. very much a part of it. Uh, because yep. before QAnon, you had Pizzagate that uh, yep. kind of launched QAnon's foot grounding foundation. Yep. Um, so yeah, it never ended and it probably won't. You'll always find something out there to latch onto. There'll be another one coming in soon enough, soon enough. Oh, I don't even know what to say. I'm just like, uh, great way to kick off the week. uh, Great great Monday. Great Monday. Um, (laughs) well, I guess we can ask. So that kind of wraps up the satanic panic. If you want to see, I'm going to put some pictures of the McMartin school and the McMartin defendants on our Facebook group. So follow our Facebook group at manipulating the masses podcast. 